Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Learn to Love podcast, your guide to everything love, sex, intimacy, and relationships. Each week, your host, Zach Beach, interviews new experts on love, including couples therapists, relationship coaches, sex educators, and best-selling authors. Learn the best tips and cutting-edge wisdom to better love yourself, others, and the world. Thanks so much for joining us. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Learn to Love podcast, everyone. I am your host, Zach Beach, and I'm here with the incredible parent baby educator, Laura Elfstrand. Hello, Laura, and welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. Today, we're going to be talking about falling in love with parenting together. And for those that don't know, Laura Elfstrand is an educator and doula who calls herself the new parent sanity specialist. She helps babies to cry less, smile more, and develop well, while also helping parents to support growth from a calm, confident, and unconditional place. Laura is a postpartum doula with a master's in early childhood special education. She is also an advanced transdisciplinary infant parent mental health practitioner with certifications in Happiest Baby on the Block, the John Gottman and Gottman Institute's Bringing Baby Home program, and Infant Massage. And she will actually be teaching a Bringing Baby Home workshop for the Heart Center online. So we can talk more about that at the end of the show. And welcome to the show, Laura. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. And I have a list of questions for you, and I'm really excited that you're on. But right before we started recording, you started telling me about woo-hooing our mistakes and how that can transform our lives. So I really want to start with that. Can you tell our listeners what it means to woo-hoo our mistakes? Yeah. So one of the things that I've been learning as I've been a business owner is that I started taking improv and... Improv is awesome for building our growth mindset. You know, you're throwing the ball around and when you drop it, the one of the very first things they teach you is when you drop the ball or when you make a mistake, we're going to celebrate it. We're going to say, woohoo, and we're not just going to ignore it. We're not going to punish it. And how amazing would it be for our parenting if we could really celebrate both our mistakes and our children's mistakes and learn from them? Not that we want to just ignore them, but look at them as an opportunity for learning. And one of the things that I really think about in terms of parenting is that we are iterating our way to awesome. (laughs) Our parenting is going to iterate its way to awesome. Our children are going to iterate their way to awesome. By definition, young children are immature. And we all start off making a ton of mistakes and we need a ton of repetition making really stupid mistakes so that we can learn to do it better. I love it. We are iterating our way to awesome. So I love this idea of woohooing and celebrating our mistakes because as a growing child, as a developing child, you don't want to feel judged and criticized and you want to be free to make life this learning process of figuring things out. So I'm curious if you could just provide maybe just like a quick example of like a mistake a child might do and then how you as a parent can celebrate it and turn it into a learning experience. I mean, some of the classic ones that come to my mind are things like taking another child's toy, you know, and while we don't want to celebrate that you just were rude to that other child, 
when we're little, we don't have the skills yet to do it another way. And so we can stop. I like to think also of a stoplight illustration. We can say, "Uh uh-oh, I see a problem. Stop, red light. Stop and calm down. Oh, and we can say, oops, you made a mistake. Woo! (laughs) (laughs) How are you feeling right now? What are our options? So like the red light is let's stop and calm down. And the yellow light is what are our options? And then the green light is, okay, well, let's pick one of those options and see how it works. Because part of woohooing our mistakes too is, okay, well, we woohooed a mistake. And what are our options right now? Like, let's pick something else. Let's kind of view our mistakes as experiments. So we get to the red light. Okay, so we took the other child's toy. And how is that child feeling? Oh, that probably that child is crying at the moment. So what are our options? Well, we can say we're sorry. Next time, what can we do? We can ask for the toy, maybe. We can say my turn, depending how many words that the child has at that point. And we're little by little teaching more, thinking about what is the need that's underneath what the child is expressing and how can we help them to meet that need more appropriately. And viewing it as grand as a grand experiment, like, Children are great experimenters, great little scientists. And how can we support them to like, okay, well, and maybe we could say, oh, you could trade toys, but maybe we have a toy that the other child doesn't want. Maybe they don't want to trade. Maybe they, okay, well, we could get out a timer and say, okay, well, can I have a turn in two minutes? Yeah, I love that. It's so important. Like in all areas of life, we want to be able to pause check in and respond to the situations and challenges life presents us in a better way. And the red, yellow, green light is really beautiful because the red is when we pause, we stop what we're doing. And the yellow is when we check in, how are we feeling? How are they feeling? What's the need in the situation? And what what can we do to remedy and repair the problem that is occurring right now? And try different things because in a different situation, like one child may want want the toy we have and we can trade but maybe they don't. Use it as as an opportunity to get to know ourselves and get to know our child and and for the child to get to know the other the other child. So after a while they might learn, "Oh, this child will trade for this kind of a toy, but the other child maybe won't." And maybe with one person in one situation it'll work better to trade and in another situation maybe it'll work better to ask for a turn. Sometimes we need to ask for extra help from an outside, an adult in that case. (laughs) Yeah, I really love your emphasis on learning and growing both as a child and as the parent. Because as a parent, you have all this pressure. You think you're supposed to know everything. You think you're supposed to be perfect. But life is just this endless learning process. And I think that can really help people also planning to have children because they might feel that they're not ready. And the topic of this episode is all about transitioning to parenthood. And I want to start at like the very, very, very beginning where couples are thinking about having a baby. And there is a saying that you're never ready, but I thought I'd ask the expert right here, when would you say a couple is ready to have a baby? I was really reflecting on that this week. And the three things that I was thinking about were one was iterating our way to awesome. Another was preparing myself and my relationship. And the other thing was really thinking about what 
a baby needs in the early days. So interestingly, this week, as I was preparing for this chat, there was a gentleman here who was fixing some things in our house. And so we got talking about parenting, as I often do, because I ask everybody about what's their experience been like. And he said that when he found out that he and his partner were going to have a baby, that he decided that it was time to stop partying and become a parent. Whereas his partner at the time did not make that decision. And in the end, he ended up with full custody and has changed his life around by becoming a parent. And so I thought that was an interesting story to kind of reflect on in terms of when are we ready to have a baby? Because clearly this was not a planned thing. And one person took was able to take the path of responsibility, so to speak, and the other person was not. And there are so many factors, and I don't say that in a blaming way. There are so many factors that can support the ability to make that change, but I think it just brought to mind that idea of iterating our way to awesome. And it was interesting. I was looking online for like, when are we ready? And some of the <laughs> articles were like, when all you can think about is having a baby. I'm like, no, that's not an indicator of when we're ready. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm really hearing from you like a willingness to step up to the situation because it is true that a lot of people before the baby comes aren't ready. But then once it comes, they are able and willing and ready to transform, change their life, change their viewpoint in order for this, you know, new miracle in their life to survive. Yes, exactly. And there are things that we can do that definitely will help us and help our success in our relationships and our baby's development. So I think about things I can do to invest in myself would be things like improving my ability to express my needs. And especially choosing the discomfort of saying no over the resentment of saying yes. Or just being able to learn to express our needs and not let them pile up. Because so often in early parenting, we're so tired and the amount of work is so overwhelming that we really need, we need to build our team. That's going to be a huge theme as we talk today too, is having a team around us, both friends and family, if we have family And also professional support and how we can find that. We can think about relative stability, of course, is ideal, but not necessarily as important as the team, as having a strong social network. Of course, ideally, if we can, taking time off at the beginning of a baby's life can be so transformative to give us and the baby the chance to really bond and the amount of time that we are generally given here in the United States pretty much sucks. So sometimes it's zero. Yeah. Sometimes it's zero. And even if you think about like six weeks, the average is probably six to eight weeks. And that's the key period of time when if a baby's going to have colic, it's going to be around six to eight weeks. So just think of how many families are like starting back to work right at the time when their baby is the light, the most likely to be fussy. Well, I think that goes into like the third thing that you were mentioning about what a couple needs to have a baby is thinking about what a baby needs. And yes. could you tell us a little bit about more about that? Like what does a baby need? Yes. 
One thing that a baby needs is they need us to have a strong relationship as a couple. They need a warm and nurturing environment because we know that babies are emotional sponges. And if our home is full of conflict, and we know that according to Gottman research, two-thirds of the couples that they studied experienced a significant increase in hostility when a baby is born. Two-thirds. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. If we think about the sleep deprivation and the extra work and all the identity changes that are happening, Mm -hmm. it's just so important that we invest time and energy into our relationship, into our conflict management skills, talking to each other about how we react under stress and finding coping mechanisms that are soothing and productive, but also really recognizing that one of the most primary goals of the first year of life is to build trust. And how do we do that? Well, we respond to the baby. We get to know the baby. We observe the baby and figure out how do they tell us? I mean, one of the challenges of the very beginning is that babies don't yet have language. So we have to be the ones who entirely are figuring out what they're trying to communicate. And we have to figure out those little subtle signs that say, I'm tired or I'm hungry. And I know that for me as a new parent, I think I went into it assuming that if the baby was tired, he would sleep. (laughs) (laughs) And I was so wrong. (laughs) (laughs) So being able to like first learn to be aware of how he was saying that he needed to sleep. And then also, again, experimenting because... And we're going to woohoo our mistakes here all the time because we don't know at the beginning what the baby's signs are. And we're going to flub through it and figure out, okay, well, is this what you mean? Is that what you, are you tired right now? Are you hungry right now? And there are some things we can do. We can, I know that some, for some families, it can be really helpful to alternate eat, play, and sleep, eat, play, and sleep. <laughs> um, because that generally that's means how I live that my life. the next, I know, seriously. <laughs> <laughs> but generally, we know that if we rotate like that, that the next cry is pretty likely to be the next thing in the rotation. And it's a way to have some predictability without having a strict clock schedule that says it's two o'clock. So this is what you should be doing right now because I say so, which doesn't really fit with a baby's body so much. But the trick of rotating eat, play, sleep is that sleep is a fullness cue. And so many babies fall asleep when they're at the end of the meal just because, you know, what do you do at the end of a Thanksgiving meal? You probably fall asleep at the end because you're full. So it can be a little tricky just keeping the baby up long enough to play and have some alert time to then get that next tired cue. But that's one strategy that can be helpful to be able to learn and hear the difference between the different types of cries, for example. So real quick, when you talk about rotating, eat, play, and sleep, like what are the time frames of each of these phases? Well, you think about that a newborn baby needs to eat eight to 12 times in 24 hours. So each rotation is going to be probably about three to four hours, more or less. Yeah. And of course, if we can aim to get longer stretches at night of the sleep and then keeping that activity period to like nothing. (laughs) At night, of course, our goal is going to be 
get rid of the activity part and just eat and sleep and eat and sleep. The challenge with that is that if you think about it, all day long during pregnancy, that baby is getting rocked as mom walks around. And so baby's basically getting rocked depending on how much mom is moving throughout the day. But often babies are more active at night because mom stops rocking them. So it can be a real challenge at the beginning to teach the baby and switch the baby's body clock to be more alert during the day and to get more sleep at night because just definition says that they've been getting rocked and held, well, rocked, held, of course, 24-7, but often rocked throughout the day while we're busy walking around and then they tend to be more active at night because we stop and rest. Yeah, and I know a lot of people, they get those little machines that <laughs> will rock the baby while they're making dinner. Yes. So I love your emphasis on the baby needing a warm, nurturing environment, on how important the strength of the relationship is for the baby's upbringing. And I want to back up a little bit again before the baby is born, because just the process of getting pregnant can also be harrowing for a number of couples. For some couples, it's so easy, happens on accident. It's like, oh, well, I'm pregnant now. While other couples struggle for a whole year or even longer to conceive their first child. So I think one of the biggest challenges is just the uncertainty of when it's going to happen. And I'm wondering how couples can best cope with such uncertainty. My experience would say a couple things. One is to seek to be curious, to not make assumptions about our partner, but really get to know them as they change. And this waiting period and the whole process of going from we're a couple and we're focused on being together to even we're thinking about becoming parents. And then, of course, later to becoming parents or not becoming parents or figuring out a new plan. I think it's really important to give each other the benefit of the doubt, to trust each other's heart, but really to not take for granted or not assume that we know each other already. It's easy sometimes to say, oh, well, we've been together for a long time, so I shouldn't have to ask you get to know you questions anymore because I'm supposed to know it already. And we do want to know each other really well, but that makes the assumption that people are the same and they're really not. And I think it's just so important as we're waiting to just continue to get to know each other and continue to be curious about one another. And I think it's also a really good opportunity for implementing the Gottman six hours a week to a better relationship. So according to Gottman research, the idea is that we can have a pretty dang good relationship with six hours, meaning 10 minutes per week, two minutes a day for a great hello and goodbye for like a really good kiss. Uh, what do you expect is going to happen today so that you can ask a better question at the end of the day? A 20 minute conversation at the end of the day where each person gets to talk about how their day went and really feel heard without receiving advice. Five minutes a day to express appreciation and admiration and focus on the things that we like about each other. Five minutes a day for physical affection. And then two hours a week for a date night. 
and one hour a week for a family meeting. And I feel like if we could all set up our lives so that we had a regular date, we had regular times when we express what we like about one another, where we're getting to know each other by asking how our day went, by starting off the day saying, hey, what do you think is going to happen today? So that we can ask more appropriate questions and more detailed questions at the end of the day. But especially, I think the State of the Union meeting can be so, so, so helpful because it's an opportunity to express our needs when it's not in the moment. I think a huge, huge thing that I didn't realize until until I started really teaching the Gottman material, I guess, is that just the power of fight or flight and recognizing when I'm too upset to be able to talk about it in the moment. But if we have a weekly time set aside to bring up our needs and concerns, then we can naturally be working on those issues in a way that keeps the needs lower and can help us to get to know each other and not letting those needs build up and still have lots of appreciation and affection and keep the ratio of positive to negative really nice and strong. Yeah, I really feel that really ties into everything that you said before around the three things that we want to make sure we have before we have the baby. One is iterating our way to awesome. So always seeking to grow and always seeking to learn. And then you said knowing what a baby needs, in this case, a warm, nurturing environment. And then finally, you said preparing myself and my relationship with all those things you just mentioned, remaining curious and really devoting a certain amount of time to the relationship to connect multiple times a day, to have a deep dive once a week. And I do really love that shift that you're speaking of. I kind of call it like stop thinking that you're in a relationship and instead be in a continuous process of relating. Meaning like people think that they agree to marriage or agree to be partners and then they're done rather than recognizing you can never fully know somebody. And yes, even the person that you married and are having a baby with, you can still remain curious and learn about their world and what it means like to be them. Exactly. All right. So I'm prepped. And now, yay, we're pregnant. And you write about and talk about this idea that with every pregnancy, there are three babies. And what are those three babies? Yes. So the three babies are, there's a feared baby, a baby that has special needs or behavioral challenges. There's a perfect baby who is perfect and smiling and cute and adorable and (laughs) probably super chubby and you just want to like eat them up. (laughs) And they go to sleep when they're tired. (laughs) They totally go to sleep when they're tired. Yes, exactly. And their cues are really clear. It's really obvious to tell when they're hungry. It's obvious to tell when they're tired. And it just, everything goes really smoothly. And then the third type of baby is the real baby. And every pregnancy... And this is from Dr. T. Barry Brazelton, but I totally, it's totally buy into it. Is that in every baby is a real baby. There's elements of the feared baby. There's elements of the perfect baby. And really our job as parents and my job as a professional is to support parents so that we get to know the real baby. And I really think that this applies with our partners as well, right? When we first meet, we... We tend to think that our partner is going to be perfect. 
we're when we're in that really honeymoon fall in love stage what we see is the perfect person and then at some point we probably get to a point where things look a little feared and scary and our goal is to come out of it knowing each other better appreciating the things that are awesome working on and making repairs for the things that are not awesome but acknowledging that we are all real people. I mean, Dr. Gottman talks about repair being one of the most important aspects of a relationship. And that just fits really nicely with this idea that every baby and every partner is both perfect and feared. And we're, we're iterating our way to awesome. (laughs) And we're going to woohoo our mistakes along the way. And hopefully not let the parent guilt eat us up when we make those mistakes, because we will. It's so true. You know, at the beginning of a relationship, we almost always have an idealized version of our partner. And we think that they're perfect and they meet our needs in every single way. And part of the process of falling in love is welcoming in what we might think of as the good and the bad or just the wholeness of who the person is. We can apply that same sentiment to this baby that we have. And we've been talking a lot about like managing this transition to parenthood. And our actual topic for today is not just managing it, but falling in love with parenting together. So we already talked about, well, you know, when you fall in love at the beginning of a relationship, and now we're kind of easing into this other idea that you can fall in love again with parenting. So what does that look like? What does it mean to fall in love with parenting together? You know, I think it means showing kindness, which is not necessarily the same as being nice to our partner. I think it means taking an attitude of curiosity and pretend play so that we can listen to each other's dreams without shutting them down in those times when the dreams conflict with ours, giving each other the benefit of the doubt. And really, I think one thing that can make a huge difference is one way we can prepare is to write out for each other during pregnancy or before what kind of parent we want to be and have it handy because there are going to be times when we don't live up to what we want to be and we can change it later. We have the right we were talking about that our partners are going to be changing and we're going to be changing. We can make changes as we go. But if we have an idea ahead of time of what kind of a partner, what kind of a parent my partner wants to be, then in those moments when things aren't going right, when they're not going our way, then we can be supportive. We can have, we can trust their heart. Yeah, literally the episode before this was our 50th anniversary where I decided to interview my own parents, believe it or not. And I was asking them for their advice on making sure your marriage lasts for the long term. And that was one of the biggest things is really having those conversations early on, either before the children come or once they arrive, about what are your deepest values that you really want to instill in the relationship that you have and in the family that you are creating. And they mirrored exactly what you're saying right now, which is, well, we want to be open and empathetic and curious to the other and kind to the other, giving them the benefit of the doubt and assuming positive intent that we're trying our best. 
And also recognizing that life is change. The only constant is change. The person you marry would not be the same person 20 years from then. And that beautiful process of change is an endless opportunity to go deeper in one's love and to continue to grow more into the love that you are creating. Yeah. You know, I'm thinking back about also how quickly babies change. They always say, oh, they grow up so fast. And it is true, their needs change quickly, their diets change quickly, their sleeping habits change quickly. So how do we best manage the changing needs of our growing little miracles? (laughs) (laughs) Good question. One thing that comes to mind is another T. Barry Brazelton phrase, which was to use the behavior of the child as our language. Because if we think about it, it can be really destructive to give our partner a lot of advice. And yet somehow we have to stay on the same page as them around how we're going to handle certain situations and and what's working. For example, it can be really tricky, I think, if there's one parent that's at home with the child all day while the other parent is working. And how do we allow the parent who's working during the day to figure out their own systems of parenting, but also be aware of what's working. And I think a huge challenge is gatekeeping and the idea that whenever two people love the same child, there's a tendency to compete. And so how do we really build a team where we communicate about what's happening without saying, well, this is how you need to do it because I say so, because I'm usually it's the mom and allowing room for the working partner to figure it out while giving them the information about, okay, here's what I'm doing and here's why. But I think especially using the behavior of the child as our language can be so helpful so that we say things like, you know, when I did this, the baby reacted that way. When I fed the baby four ounces, the baby spit up a lot. So I would suggest you try three and a half or whatever (laughs) the situation is. But looking for ways to allow both parents to have time alone with the baby to figure it out and to talk about what's working. And again, the need for that family meeting where we can say, hey, how are we get? Let's create a plan around this that we can both be happy with so that it doesn't feel like one person is making all of the decisions. I also like to talk about the idea. This is my own phrase. I don't, I've heard some variations on it, but I think about the invisible umbilical cord and the idea that whenever one person is pregnant and the other person is not, but we're trying to parent together as a team, there's a tendency for imbalance to take place because when you're pregnant Everything you do, you're concerned about how is it going to impact this baby? And, you know, you you tend to think about exercise and stress and what you're eating and what you're not eating. And, you know, should you have fish? What kind of fish is okay and safe? And what kind of lunch meat? And all these little things that you don't have to worry so much about if you're not pregnant. And yet both parents are really in the process of transforming into becoming a parent. I like to think of this idea that it's not just a baby being born, but there's a mother being born. There's a father being born. There's parents being born at the same time that there's a baby being born. 
And it's a different process to go through the pregnancy process. And particularly, like I say, if there's one who's pregnant and one who's not, it can create a sense of imbalance. And also, if you think about this idea that in the beginning, mom and baby start off as one, literally one, they're sharing a body. And then there's a real process afterwards of, of learning to separate and that we're two, two people, not just one. And where, where are the lines? And the partner, if they're not aware, often the things that the partner does can be taken personally. So if the partner seems like they're doing something that, that makes them a great parent in the eyes of the mom, then that can be interpreted as warmth and nurturing in the parent-couple relationship. And if that other person does something like they go off without allowing the mom to take a shower or they say something that seems like it might be considered rude to the baby, that mom is very likely to take that personally. And that can have a real impact on the relationship as a couple. Yeah, it's an extraordinary challenge. First, I just want to mention that like this is like poetry to me that I love that you mentioned how when a baby is born, a mother and father are born at the same time. That's such like an important thing to notice is that the parents are transforming themselves. And it is true that there is and can be an extraordinary imbalance, like despite even a partner's like best efforts. You know, I'm imagining like the father coming home and they want to be involved and they want to help out. They want to be supportive. And they're like, here, I'll I'll take care of the baby. You know, you've been rocking it and breastfeeding it all day. Let me just hold it for a while. And as soon as the father takes it, the baby just bursts into tears and starts screaming for mama. And then he's like, well, I tried. Here you go. Like, (laughs) my best efforts. You know, the baby wants what it wants. And it can happen in either partner too. So how can one partner who's perhaps not as involved and the baby has a clear preference for the other one, how can that partner still be the best and most supportive partner they can be? I think that's a great question. It's an opportunity, I think, to think early on about the Goldilocks principle. Just thinking about the just right challenge. So, and and also thinking about the idea of when of the pattern that we have established or the the deal I, I like to think of it as the deal we've established like that so, whether we intend to or not we often do establish a deal with a little baby so if baby's only strategy for calming is breastfeeding it's going to be really challenging and of course some babies are going to be more inclined to soothe with breastfeeding and with sucking and other babies that will be less powerful. So there's a personality aspect to it, but there's also an aspect of what type of pattern that we establish. So often I like to suggest that in the period somewhere around three or four weeks, it could be different if you decide to do bottle feeding, but if if breastfeeding, then the period around three to four weeks is about when milk is generally well established. And so it's a it's a window of opportunity for the partner to bottle feed, to start and establish a deal that says that mom's not the only one that can feed you. If we wait too long, the baby can decide this this breastfeeding thing is the only way I'm going to eat. And 
it takes some consistency, but you can establish a deal that says that both parents can feed. Particularly, of course, if breastfeeding, then it's helpful for dad or partner to feed at a consistent time of day, just because for milk production purposes, to continue that supply and demand can be tricky and having it be a consistent time of day can be helpful. But then also things like infant massage. Infant massage has both been shown to reduce postpartum depression in moms, but it's also a great way for dads to have an opportunity to soothe and bond with a baby and enjoy that physical touch in a really warm and appropriate way that's not dependent on breastfeeding. So I think dads in particular can really take initiative to learn things like reading the baby's cues. The happiest baby on the block is great most of the time for sleep and for soothing purposes. And so if dad really can take initiative to learn some infant massage, to learn some soothing strategies, to learn to read the baby's cues, then that can just be so helpful so that the baby also is learning different strategies for calming that don't just depend on the mom and that enable both partners to be able to know their baby and soothe the baby well and to be able to better take turns so that both parents can get a chance to rest. Yeah, that's such an important distinction that it's possible to set in a standard early on that both parents can feed, get the baby used to receiving a bottle from the dad just as much as getting breastfed from the mom so that the dad can be more involved in the process. Mm-hmm. And it's not 100%. Some babies are just could be really stuck on <laughs> breastfeeding. Right. But there are little things that we can do. We can be persistent. We can look for the opportunities to try it. And even with the bathing baby soothing strategies that I teach, the research seems to show that the things like happiest baby on the block and infant massage and and reading cues that for colic purposes that will help about 85% of babies. And there will still be approximately 15% that will cry in a way we might describe as colic. And in those cases The goal is to really support one another to be with the baby while they cry and to support the baby and to just be able to say to ourselves, okay, our job right now is just to be here for the baby while we ride out this fussiness, but be able to take turns with our partners. Because if we have a really fussy baby all day long, it's going to be really draining and we're going to need somebody to take turns with so that we can refresh ourselves and then come back and still be able to be empathetic and supportive. No, it's true that much of our love is just through our presence and our attention. So hearing you say we sometimes we just have to be there for the baby as they get fussy, as they cry for no reason, even when they're fed, when they've slept, sometimes I just need to be held. So thanks so much, Lara, for coming on the show. I've learned so much already. And for our listeners that are interested in learning more and need more help and guidance on their way to becoming parents, we are producing together and Lara will be teaching a Bringing Baby Home workshop, which is a six-week series that will be starting on April 22nd. So the last Thursday is May 27th. 
And that will be every Thursday from 4 to 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. So that's 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. It's going to be on Zoom. So no matter where you are in the States or the world, you can hop in. And real quick, Laura, so tell our listeners a little bit about what the Bringing Baby Home Workshop is and who might want to attend. Bringing Baby Home is meant to protect and nurture our relationships when we have a new baby. And every strategy that we talk about will apply both as a partner and as a parent. It is research-based and research-tested to increase relationship satisfaction, decrease hostility, increase intimacy as a couple, and to actually reduce crying and increase smiling during family play. And the research also shows that the babies of couples who took the class, even though they took the class during pregnancy, those babies were tested when they were a year old. And the babies whose parents took the class had higher language and cognitive scores than the parents, than the babies of parents who didn't take the class. So it can both help our relationship. It helps our baby's development. It can also reduce the chance of postpartum depression. And so it is appropriate for parents who are expecting a baby as preparation, but it's also super appropriate for parents who have an infant or a toddler at home. It helps both our partnership and it helps with getting to know our baby and reading infant cues. Amazing. I can't wait. It's super fun. So I want to finish or I always finish the show by asking the same question to all of my guests, which is quite simply, what do you wish everyone knew about love? I wish everyone knew how to have five times more positive interactions than negatives when we're fighting and 20 times more positive interactions than negatives when we're not fighting. How to have a really strong friendship and also great conflict management skills so that we can express our needs clearly and respectfully before they build up and explode into criticism and contempt. Amazing. I love the I love the data. I love the evidence. I love the research that you're bringing bringing on to here. So thank you so much. And thank you listeners for listening to the show. We hope you remember that our little ones are such miracles and they're also challenges, but there are fortunately many tools you can use to weather the storm. So remember to iterate your way to awesome, always learning, always growing, always becoming better. Remember to create a foundation of love and trust and warmth and empathy and curiosity for your relationship. And remember that you yourself are undergoing the transformation and learning process with your baby. So when a baby is born, a mother and a father are born too. If you want to learn more about me, you can head to zachbeach.com and you can learn more about the show at theheartcenter.com where you can also sign up for the upcoming six-week Bringing Baby Home workshop on April 22nd. Just head to the-heart-center.com. Thanks again, Laura. Thank you. It's been fun. Thanks again for listening to the Learn to Love podcast. To learn more about the show and your host, head over to ZachBeach.com or TheHeartCenter.com. You can also follow Zach on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.